Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast obsessed with horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Greetings, listeners. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while, but here we are again, ready to talk some horror. This week, as I teased in my last show, which was more, which was more than a month ago, I should add, we're doing a comic near and dear to my heart, American Vampire, published by Vertigo, writer Scott Snyder, artist Raphael Albuquerque, first published in 2010. That's when issue one came out in March of that year. And so far, uh, the book has been um, published in two cycles. Cycle one um, was completed in 2013, and now we're on cycle two. Uh, But no new issues have been published since 2015. However, there are eight beautiful trade paperbacks available. Um, They're especially nice in hardcover. I would recommend you uh, picking them up in that form or in that format. But if you can't, the paperbacks are... um, quite nice as well and not too pricey and uh, it's a great series one of um, my favorites especially as it concerns vampires Uh, I mean come on who doesn't like vampires especially if you're a horror nut like I am now vampires and comics um, have been uh, diversely represented I should say I don't think they've portrayed them any one way or any traditional way they've uh, writers normally experiment with vampires, but none more so than Scott Snyder and artist Raphael Albuquerque in this series. They've really taken vampires to a new level here for me, and that's why um, I feel that this series definitely uh, bears mentioning when it comes to the annals of horror comics. All right, well, we'll get straight into the series. First, I should mention that we're only going to be discussing Volume 1. In future shows, we'll be doing um, the rest of the subsequent volumes. However, Volume 1 is where it kicks off, and um, Stephen King actually wrote the backup stories in the first five issues of American Vampire, and um, apparently he conceived this uh, concept with Scott Snyder, along with him, and Scott Snyder got Stephen King to uh, join him on this project, and they got the amazingly talented Raphael Albuquerque on as the artist, and the comic just gelled from there. It worked and uh, became hugely popular, won a couple of Eisner Awards. Um, and Stephen King obviously um, didn't continue writing because he's got lots of other writing projects. The man's very busy. Um, after issue five, he left and there was no need for any more backstory. But Scott and Raphael continued with their story and it definitely became an entire mythology Um And I'm really impressed with what they managed to accomplish here. They really reinvigorated my love for vampires, in comic books at least. All right, so uh, Volume 1 of American Vampire. 
I'll give a brief synopsis of the story, and then um, we'll discuss that. And then later on, I'll speak about the backstory, also giving a brief synopsis, and then talk about that. All right, so here we go. American Vampire, Volume 1. Our tale begins in 1925, east of Los Angeles, desert country. Bodies are being dumped into a mass grave in the middle of the night by someone dressed in some kind of a hooded garb. Uh, one of these bodies is a Miss Pearl Jones, and she's still very much alive, though she's immobilized and covered in savage bite marks. And then we flash back to three days ago, where Pearl and her best friend Hattie are extras in a Hollywood movie production, and they're dreaming of the big time. They drool over the lead actor, a guy called Chase Hamilton, this uh, mustachioed womanizer. And um, after completing their scenes for the day, they head home to the boarding house and the room they share there. By the pool, they see a layabout sunning himself in the backyard wearing a cowboy hat. But they think nothing of it and pass him by. And the next day, Pearl is noticed by the lead actor, this guy called Hamilton, and she's invited to a party at a movie producer's house at a mansion where she is then invited to meet the men who are financing the current film that they're all involved with. Uh, of course, Pearl jumps at the chance. She sees this as her opportunity to uh, audition for these people, and they might give her a, a more prominent role in upcoming films. But this so-called audition goes badly for Pearl, as these men, these producers who are financing the film, turn out to be vampires who commence to feast on her blood and to drain her to the point of death. And then we flash forward again to the desert, where Pearl is then found wandering the wastes, half dead. And she's found, and she's obviously taken to a hospital, but the docs there can do nothing for her. She's dying. No amount of blood transfusions can save her. And the young man in the cowboy hat shows up again. In the middle of the night, he climbs through her window, it's actually the 4th of July with fireworks um, exploding behind him. Then he commences to give a bit of a monologue, uh, lamenting Pearl's fate, and then he bites his own lip with a monstrous fang, letting the blood run down his mouth, and he lets it drip into one of Pearl's paralyzed, uh, terrified eyes. The next day, Pearl wakes up in the morgue. So she's obviously been put there because she's dead. She showed no signs of life, and yet she is still alive. So she runs home, still terrified, and finds the cowboy hat-wearing rogue in her bedroom, uh, a man by the name of Skinner Sweet, as he calls himself. And he proceeds to inform her that she is now a vampire, albeit a new type of vampire, an American vampire superior to the vampires from the old world, the next step in vampire evolution. And these old world vampires are the enemy. They hate what Sweet is and what Pearl has now become. And then at Skinner's urging, um, and of course driven by the desire for revenge, and there's probably a sense of justice as well, Pearl goes to war against the actor Hamilton and the producer, a guy by the name of Blow. Uh, block, sorry, Block, 
Um, and he turns out to be one of the biggest hard Hollywood producers, um, a mogul of sorts. Pearl, of course, uh, discovers her strength to be far greater than the old world vampires that she faces. She's more resilient to damage. And she has none of their weaknesses. The sun, in fact, fuels her. It empowers her. And then with the help of her friend and would-be paramour, Henry Preston, a jazz guitarist at a club Pearl used to work at, she managed, manages to exact a bloody revenge on these uh, tormentors of hers. But, unfortunately, at the cost of her humanity and at the end of the story, at the cost of a friendship which was very special to her. So that's basically the synopsis of the first story arc of American Vampire. Um, now, before we continue on with the discussion of the comic book itself, I must uh, reiterate that, um, in my opinion, Stephen King and Scott Snyder came up with this idea because of an introduction that King wrote to his famous vampire novel, Salem's Lot. I mentioned this in the previous show. Um, when I was doing the first interlude episode we had on the Long Box of Darkness. And I uh, stated the opinion that because of that um, introduction that Scott Snyder, Snyder probably read when he read Salem's Lot, King mentioned that he liked the vampires of the EC Comics era from uh, the 19, early 1950s because they were American vampires. They were businessmen. Um, they were exploiting uh, America's uh, freedoms to their own ends, often nefarious ends. And they weren't like the old school European vampires uh, hobbled by some kind of a code or a sense of propriety. No, these were American vampires, rough, cowboy-like, conquering the West, uh, sort of um, in imbued with manifest destiny the sense of that at least. And um, they were also very in or incredibly monstrous. Um, Dracula in movies uh, up until a certain point in time um, in the Universal movies and then in the Hammer films were, was portrayed as a handsome nobleman. And that became the image, the standard image of the vampire. But in this comic book series, Scott Snyder kind of turns the tables on that idea of vampirism and he shows us the monstrous sides of vampire, vampires, which we did, in fact, see in the EC comics. Um, vampires turn out to be almost zombie-like and um, feral, uh, obsessed with blood and um, berserker-type creatures um, who do anything to not just uh, sedately drink from two little pinpricks in your neck, but actually to rip open your throat and lap up the blood in huge torrents, fountains of spewing gore. So um, that is what makes this comic such a quintessential horror story for me, is the fact that you are truly terrified when you see the images uh, that Albuquerque, the artist, portrays here. Um, and then while I was uh, you know, cogitating on this podcast, before I started to record, I... I was struck by how much uh, the character of Skinner Sweet, in fact, looks visually like um, the singer Tom Petty. Now, um, last year, October, Tom Petty, um, he passed away. He was one of my favorite, uh, 
you know, singer-songwriters. I loved him and his Heartbreaker band um, back in the day. And um, I felt kind of a, a sadness coming over me when I when I um, was doing the show because um, I kept thinking about old Tom and all the great songs he wrote. And Skinner looks almost exactly like Tom Petty, except, you know, for the cowboy hat and the constant presence of a candy cane or a stick of candy um, that Skinner has with him. He usually puts it in the hat band that he has or he just uh, chews it like a stalk of grass, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn style. And, um, you know, then, uh, as I was, um, planning the show, um, it struck me how much, uh, Pearl Jones reminded me of, I mean, visually of the Cranberry singer, Dolores O'Riordan, who also recently passed away, um, sometime in January, I think it was January 15th, even, um, also one of my childhood favorites. So, uh, it's a bit of a bittersweet note that I'm trying to strike here, but yeah, that made a bit of a, um, a sad, uh, impact on me while I was doing the planning for this episode. So yeah, old Tom Petty looks like Skinner sweet. Pearl Jones is almost a cardboard cutout with the short black hair of Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberry. So, um, just expect listeners, just expect some, uh, you know, Cranberry and Tom Petty songs later on in the show just to set the mood here. All right, so back to the comic. All right, we've got uh, Skinner, and um, we'll look at his character first. Skinner Sweet. Um, he's obviously an anti-hero, even a, an outright villain. Later on, when we get into the backstory, uh, we'll talk more about that. But um, he has no wish to save Pearl Jones. He merely wishes to use her as a tool against his enemies. And his enemies have and uh, always will be these old world vampires who won't accept the new status quo. And they won't, um, you know, accept the fact that Skinner is the new type of vampire that is here to replace them, at least on the evolutionary ladder. So Pearl turns out to be a very effective weapon. Skinner planned at the end, okay, this is where we get into spoiler territory. So for anybody who doesn't want the rest of the story spoiled, uh, first read the comic and then come back later and listen to the rest of um, the discussion. Skinner, in fact, saves Pearl simply so that she could destroy the old world, world vampires for him. And he planned to kill her because as af after she was done with him, after she became his weapon... Because, as it turns out, the American vampires do, in fact, have weaknesses, as Pearl soon discovers. At first, Pearl is told almost nothing by Skinner other than the fact that um, these old-world vampires that she's about to face will definitely have weaknesses. And this is brilliantly illustrated when Skinner meets up with her in her dorm room, um, and he pins a little bit of a, a note on the fridge. Uh, <laughs> A childlike note saying, comparing the American vampires with the old world vampires. And um, it's brilliant. Basically, uh, <laughs> the note reads something like this. Um, it's got two columns, us and them. Um, and in the them column, it, it has a number of um, attributes. And one of the attributes being that, you know, they like faggy clothes. <laughs> And 
Another one, obviously, being they hate sunlight and they hate stakes, wooden stakes, especially of the pine variety. And um, they like moonlight. And uh, then, um, in terms of the American vampires, which he designates as us, he says, oh, I don't want to ruin the surprise. Off we go. Skinner Sweet. P.S. P.S. I left you something in the closet. So Pearl obviously opens up the closet and she sees that it's Chase Hamilton, the actor who betrayed her all trussed up like a Thanksgiving turkey, uh, ready for a snack. And this is the first ever time in the American Vampire comic where we see the true monstrousness of what an American vampire looks like once it transforms into its ultimate vampiric uh, form. So they look completely human, but... When they want to access their full powers, they metamorphose and their jaws become these elongated maws. Um, And the the fangs are incredibly long, half a foot in length at least, far longer than normal vampires' canines. And their hands become stretched out and uh, change into these giant claws. And their bodies become thin but, but full of wiry muscle and uh, their limbs distend and and also elongate, um, and they normally hiss like snakes, like rattlesnakes, and um, that's what happens to Pearl when she sees this Chase Hamilton tied up in her closet, and she proceeds to, well, slaughter him in a typically gruesome manner, and it also turns out that the American vampires bite um, once you've been bitten. It paralyzes you completely. Your muscles atrophy. Um, it becomes, It's almost like you um, enter a state of advanced rigor mortis. So just a, a little bite can already paralyze the victim. And that um, obviously has the advantage of, of preventing the victim from struggling too much. So Pearl then, you know, uh, gets her revenge on Hamilton at least. But now she's off to deal with Block and his cronies. And of course she does so. Um, there's this one scene where, as it turns out, Block and his business partners, all of these Hollywood moguls, they have famous Hollywood actors as manservants and uh, chauffeurs, taking them around the city, acting as their familiars in daylight. And um, there's this one great scene where two of these prominent vampires are being you know, taken in a car, but this is in broad daylight. But but obviously they think the risk is worth it. They're heavily covered in sunscreen. They're using umbrellas and dark clothes to protect themselves from the sun. And these two famous Hollywood stars, uh, male Hollywood stars, uh, shepherd them into this car. And then what happens is um, Pearl pulls up alongside the vehicle in um, on on a motorcycle that she you know purloined, and she she smiles and she's pretty and. She looks at this actor who's driving the car and she says, hey, you're Tad Chesterfield, the movie star. And old Tad says, in the flesh. And then suddenly Pearl's face starts to transform. Her fangs start coming out and she says, I always hated your fucking movies. And then she, obviously now in her full American vampire form, with these massive claws, she jumps from the bike, uh, slashes Tad's throat and throws him out of the pa- the window, and then she rips open the roof of the car and um, pulls off the one vampire's face, 
and the car crashes, um, then this faceless vampire tries to crawl out and protect himself from the sun in this pathetic panel where he's still trying to open an umbrella to, to shield himself from the, the sun's rays. And Pearl's having none of that. She grabs a stake um, that was lying nearby because they crashed through a wooden fence. And um, she takes one of these fence posts and just rams it through his heart. And he dies bubbling in the sunlight. And then um, the the female vampire, um, who is now trapped underneath the wreckage, she's uh, scared of coming out, you know, of the wreckage because obviously the sun is burning her. But um, it seems that the sun's just about to set, and then Pearl goads her um, and tells her, and there's a bit of smack talking going on here, and Pearl tells her, "Come on out of there! Come on, let's have it, you know, have it out, you against me." And immediately, this girl's all game. She's she's ready to rip Pearl apart. But as it turns out, she's no match for Pearl. Pearl, even though she's just, what, 24-hour old vampire, she slashes this girl a new one. And um, then, obviously, this vampire girl's cowering. Pearl grabs her by the head and impales her on a cactus plant, giving her a bit of a... Uh, edification here. She educates this girl in saying that, did you know cactus thorns are mostly made of wood and then split that's the sound effect as she impales this female vampire all right so then pearl eventually ends up confronting with the help of her friend henry preston who's sweet on her a guitar player jazz guitarist who loves her she confronts a block the movie producer and um they've kidnapped her best friend hattie whom we encountered in the first issue um, also one of the extras um, in Chase Hamilton's movie. And um, as it turns out, old Hattie um, becomes, and this is another spoiler, she is a traitor. She literally, as Pearl comes to rescue her, stabs Pearl in the back because she has been employed by Block and his um, vampires all along. And she was actually the very person who dumped the bodies in the first issue of the series. So she dumped her best friend's still living corpse in that ditch in the desert. And uh, Pearl finds this out the hard way because just as she's about to destroy these, um, these old world vampires who are confronting her now in this um, deserted location where they're having the standoff, uh, Hattie stabs her in the back with a giant Bowie knife or something, a Bowie knife, sorry. And then, have David Bowie. That's what the heck. Uh, if only David Bowie did have his own knife, that would have been cool. Anyway, with this Bowie knife, Pearl's stabbed in the back. And then um, this hurts her, but it doesn't kill her because uh, that's not the way an American vampire can perish. However, she learns an, a weakness that all of these new American vampires share when on moonless nights, they become lethargic and sleepy and, and somnolent. They want to just, their bodies want to shut down and rest. And she's feeling this weakness creep over her. And she knows she's no match for this, well, half a dozen of these old world vampires who are now uh, circling around her. And Hattie has stabbed her in the back. She's healing slowly. So luckily, Henry Preston shows up in his car. Uh, he picks her up, saves the day and drives off with her. Um, Pearl's weak. She's, you know, obviously having trouble 
uh, getting herself back together. So Henry allows her to feed on him. And uh, that's where their kind of their love really start, their love affair that's, that's going to last over the next few arcs of the story. And then um, Pearl feels better. She's recovered the next day. She decides to take the fight uh, to the old world vampires, especially now that they've turned Hattie. But first, um, you know, obviously we're treated to a lot of flashbacks and you can see how Hattie and Pearl first met um, and how they're such great friends and how, you know, this hurts Pearl immensely that her friend would actually turn against her. And we also learn a bit, bit of something about Henry. Henry turns out to, uh, you know, be quite capable himself, even though he's just a human. Um, he wears a dog tag. Um, he was in World War One. And he was a soldier, a Marine, actually, um, in World War One. So uh, that's why he is probably the best bet, Pearl's best bet for a friend in this war against the old world vampires. And then the um, first volume closes with Pearl actually um, doing what she set out to do and what Skinner has wanted her to do all along. She shows up at this mansion where she was first attacked with uh, Henry Preston and they've got stakes galore. They've made wooden stakes of all kinds. Pearl's even got this huge wooden scythe <laughs> that she created, um, all made from pine woods. And um, the vampires are upset that they're being confronted on their home turf by Pearl and Henry. Um, it's in the middle of the day, but obviously all the windows have been blackened and covered. and So these vampires aren't uh, bothered by the light, at least not yet. And Pearl still proceeds to hack them apart with Henry's help. And um, there's this horrific scene uh, where the vampires toss a body at Pearl. Now, this is a body of a, a woman who's um, suspended from a chain from the ceiling and her arms and legs have been amputated and she serves as basically a snack, um, a blood bag for these vampires to feed on. So they are pretty, pretty horrific and grotesque in their, you know, predilections towards, you know, drinking human blood. And then Pearl proceeds to mow them down, American vampire style, but at the very end, Henry turns out to be a bit of a weakness for Pearl because her Achilles heel, because he's being menaced by Block himself. Block has managed to, you know, uh, get Henry in his grip and he's threatening to kill him unless Pearl um, ceases to attack these vampires. But Pearl's having none of it. She, um, with a with an incredibly powerful throw, manages to chuck her scythe at the skylight above the blackened windows she shatters the windows and immediately the light fries block um, and Henry is free and then there's only one more one last thing that Pearl needs to do and that is to get revenge on Hattie so she shows up at um, this uh, theater where Hattie is working and um, Pearl asks for her autograph and Hattie immediately knows it's Pearl and then we see Hattie undergoing a startling transformation as well. She become, she has become an American vampire because, as it turns out, the blood from the knife um, which she used to stab Pearl, the Bowie knife, <laughs> uh, 
basically the blood from that knife. She used it to cut herself afterwards so that she would become uh, an American vampire as well, even more powerful than the vampires who have um, enslaved her, the old world vampires. And then um, they proceed to battle each other in this theater. And um, uh, at first, Hattie has the upper hand, but then Pearl rips open her stomach with her gigantic claws, bites her and paralyzes her. And as Hattie is paralyzed, she crawls backwards towards this uh, dressing room, uh, which has a gold star um, on the door, um, Hollywood style. And Pearl says, you wanted your gold star so bad, Hattie. She grabs the gold star and stuffs it into Hattie's mouth. And then Hattie burns up and her skin blisters and she seemingly dies. And it turns out that Pearl discovers another weakness of the American vampire. He is gold. Not silver, not pine wood, but gold. So moonless nights and gold are the weaknesses of the American vampires. Now, um, I should mention that the, the old world, world vampires, they don't know this. They, they, they mention earlier in the series they want to capture Pearl so that they could cut her up and, and study and discover their, her weakness so that they can eventually take out Skinner Sweet because all the assassins and vampires they've sent against Sweet have perished and Sweet even sends these jolly little photographs of him posing with their headless forms. Any hit team or squad hit squad that they send out against um, Skinner gets sent back to them in pieces. So they, they're concerned about the fact that they don't know the weaknesses of the species that they're up against. But Pearl discovers the weaknesses without Skinner having to help her uh, in that regard. And she does a good job of acquitting herself against these old world vampires. I mean, you have to remember she's, at this point in time, only been a vampire for almost two days. And she's already uh, you know, taken out this entire um, Los Angeles coven. And then at the very end, we have this great panel, this great scene where Skinner tracks her down as, as Pearl and Henry are planning to leave. There. And um, Skinner then says that he was planning on killing her, but he won't. Um, he likes her. She's got spunk. And um, he'll keep her around. After all, they've got eternity. So at this point in time, there are only two American vampires in the world, Skinner Sweet and Pearl Jones. Uh, Skinner does seem to not um, relish making new American vampires. He likes to be singular. Uh, he likes to be the only one, but in Pearl, he saw something special. And um, let's talk about the art a little bit more. I love the way Albuquerque, um, you know, gave these uh, vampires visual distinctions. Um, this is also, of course, due to the colorist on the series. Um, the, the vampires, the American vampires at least, have these uh, yellow eyes, almost like uh, cat's eyes, um, obviously focusing on the power of the sun that kind of fuels them. And um, they also are very, very visually distinct um, if, you if you take them as two separate characters. Um, Skinner has this cowboy-like look, even in the uh, 1920s when the cowboy look was, was going, you know, the way of the dodo. And Pearl she um, has this uh, beautiful tattoo on her back, which is a black sunflower. And she mentions earlier on in the series that she picked this black sunflower because her father used to have these black sunflowers on their farm. And she used to run and play in the sunflower field. And um, 
it's a wonderful, um, you know, visual aspect to the series that really keeps me coming back and rereading it. So I could recommend it to any of you. It definitely garners, since we're doing vampires, we're going to do the Bloody Fang rating system. I would give this five out of five Bloody Fangs. No doubt. So read American Vampire. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a break, but when we come back, we're going to discuss Stephen King's backup story that he did for the first volume of American Vampire. So stay tuned. I always had this this fascination with horror. And as a kid, I mean, I think it was just that you like to see things you're not supposed to. But as an adult, the thing I realized about why it has such a kind of gra gravitational pull to me is that, you know, good horror is where characters face their own demons. You know, the monster is the projection of the thing they're afraid is true about themselves. And I'm a, a giant Stephen King fan, and growing up, he was a huge influence on me. I mean, working with him on American Vampire was like, I can't even begin to tell you how anxious that made me. Like, <laughs> like And the funniest thing about Stephen King, by the way, is he, he totally messes with you all the time, where, like, he invited me and my wife to come see him after American Vampire was going, and um, I see I'm, like, so off topic. Anyway, that he was, like, in Florida, and he was like, come by, you know, I know you're driving through Florida because we were taking, we were going to go to Disney World. And uh, we went to his house. He was staying at his house in Tampa. And he's like, oh, move that old pile of garbage off the table while I make spaghetti. And it was like the manuscript to Under the Dome. And you're like, <laughs> uh. And then he's like, he's like, let's go for a walk on the old pier. What do you say? Right, we're back, and I'm going to give a quick synopsis of the backstory of American Vampire Volume 1, written by Stephen King. Now, when writers, at least novelists, attempt to write comic books, I sometimes find that they tr put too much words into the panels, they, into the dialogue. Um, they try to over-explain things and become too wordy. Stephen King did that a little bit here. Now, he has written comics before. He wrote the adaptation of um, Creepshow which was actually the first show of The Long Box of Darkness. And, um, you know, there he didn't suffer from that, you know, unfortunate uh, trait. But in this, he does become a little bit wordy, although the story itself is so powerful that, you know, you can overlook that aspect of it. So uh, let's get into this. Right, the backstory um, of American Vampire starts um, in the late um, 18, uh, 1900s. And this is when, um, you know, the West was already um, uh, seeing uh, the tw its twilight. And um, it starts with um, in Sidewinder, Colorado, in the 1880s, where you have uh, a Pinkerton uh, deputy um, and a Pinkerton agent called Jim Book, who's being celebrated for capturing the famous outlaw, Skinner Sweet. And um, he's got a couple of people with him. Um, uh, among them is a, a vampire called Percy, although nobody knows he's a vampire yet. He's an old-school vampire who sort of exploiting the expansion of the West to his own ends. He's in the railroad business. He's in the business of making money. A full-on um, American type of vampire, although he's not the, the actual um, species of American vampire, which is presented by Scott Snyder. He is an old-school European vampire 
who's fallen in love with the American way of life, and he's here in the sunlight, albeit with an umbrella and sunscreen. And he was involved in capturing Skinner Street too, because um, Skinner Street robbed his railroad. So he's there to see Skinner Street hang. And Jim Book has a deputy, deputy called Felix Camillo. And Felix is very scared of Sweet because Sweet is the worst outlaw ever. He's a rapist. He is a murderer. He's a psychopath. And you never know what you're going to get when you have to um, cart Skinner Sweet across the country to stand trial and to eventually hang. So that's what they're doing. They're transporting him on this train. But as it turns out, of course, Skinner Sweet has a posse of ne'er-do-wells who are planning to ambush the train and free their um, leader. And uh, here we see Skinner's signature look, though at this point in time he has these piercing blue eyes, but he still has this cowboy hat that he's wearing with this um, candy stick uh, in the headband and um, or, or in the hatband and... He banters a little bit with Jim Book and scares the heck out of Felix Camillo. And, um, you know, then they show a bit of a flashback of uh, how Skinner and his posse robbed a bank and killed a number of people and how they hold up in uh, an old mine. But eventually Skinner was, of course, captured by Jim Book, this Pinkerton agent who's a very capable guy. Um, he's, he's, he's a hardcore, uh, kind of like a... Um, a Doc Holiday type. And um, as it so happens, Skinner uses his candy stick to pick the lock when Jim Book isn't looking, and he grabs Felix Camillo and holds him hostage just as the train runs off the tracks because Skinner's posse had demolished said tracks, and there's a massive uh, train accident. Um, you know, Skinner's posse turns up and proceeds to shoot the living heck out of every single Pinkerton agent they can find. And Skinner then escapes and gets the best of Jim Book. He's about to kill Jim, but before he does, before he plunges his knife into Jim's eye, he's, he tells him that um, he sent a special bottle of wine to Jim's fiance, saying that this bottle of wine is from Jim. And um, actually what this bottle contains is a deadly poison. So just to, you know, drive the knife home, of course, telling Jim that he not he was not only now going to kill him, but he already killed Jim's fiance in this dastardly manner. So then he punches out Jim and he's about to obviously do the deed and kill him. But um, one of the passengers of the train is having none of it. The sun is setting and it turns out to be old man Percy the owner of the railroad that Skinner has been terrorizing. And um, Skinner and three of his cohorts uh, blast Percy to Kingdom Kong, but Percy gets up with these huge holes in his body and he attacks Skinner because, as I mentioned earlier, Percy is a vampire, an old-world vampire. He bites uh, Skinner and with these massive fangs, uh, Skinner manages to fend him off, but he's already got this huge uh, gaping hole in his neck. He shoots Percy in the eye, and as he does so, Percy's blood falls into Skinner's own eye. And um, Skinner's blinded by Percy's blood, and then Percy slashes open his throat, slashes open Skinner's throat with his claws. Skinner dies, and Percy walks away 
with these massive bullet holes in him. And Jim Book and um, a reporter and writer called Will Bunting, who's actually the narrator of this tale, they are confounded by what happened. Uh, Bunting, in fact, witnessed everything that happened, but he cannot believe his own eyes. Jim Book didn't because he was not senseless by Skinner. But this writer, Will Bunting, who witnessed what happened, he knows that there's something wrong with Percy and he knows what happened to Skinner Sweet. And then uh, Skinner Sweet's obviously dead. His dead bodies being brutalized by Jim Book, um, you know, because of um, what he did to Jim's fiance. And then Skinner is uh, buried. But um, his dead body smiles at the end. And as it turns out, Skinner has then become a vampire, but because of the manner in which he was made or because of some evolutionary mishap, Skinner becomes a different kind of vampire, a different form of vampire, um, which will be later known, of course, as the American vampire. Um, so, uh, but this happens only after many decades because Skinner um, is buried in a shallow grave um, a robber's grave, so to speak, he cannot get out of the coffin because soon after his burial, uh, there's a flood and the entire graveyard is covered in um, water. And so he's at the bottom of the lake. So it's hard for him to escape from this um, imprisonment, but he lives. He lives um, feeding on rats and other bugs during his time under, underneath the ground. And um, eventually, um, I think 20 years later, uh, some divers who want to dig up Skinner's body, exhume his body and sell his bones for profit um, as a type of novelty because, you know, he's one of the most famous outlaw, kind of Billy the Kid. Um, they uncover his grave and they set him free. And he snacks on these divers and uh, regains his full power. Now, he still doesn't know quite what he is. All he knows is he survived all this time in the coffin underneath the ground. And, um, you know, then we also get a bit of a, an idea of um, who's telling the story. This Will Bunting writer I mentioned earlier, he's now in 1925, the same year that uh, Skinner turned Pearl Jones. And he's um, uh, discussing his new book, a book he calls Bad Blood, which is the tale of Skinner Sweet. And it's actually him narrating this backstory, this tale that Stephen King is writing, telling us, um, you know, the history of Skinner Sweet. And um, as these divers who are searching for Sweet's body set him free from the coffin, they don't know what, what was going to happen. They're expecting this emaciated skeleton. Skinner, in his full American vampiric glory, with with this these huge jaws, jumps out at the diver and says, hello, motherfucker, got any candy? In this very scary scene that this full page spread that um, Raphael Albuquerque draws. So he kills these divers and then he moves on to the town. Now this is in 1990. It's roughly, oh, sorry, 29 years, I should say, 29 years after he was first um, buried and um, he, the first thing he looks for is a candy store because he's obsessed with candy. Hence his uh, nickname, uh, Sweet, Skinner Sweet. Or it could be his actual name. They, ne they never actually mention if that's his real name or just a nickname. But um, he is obsessed with candy. He enters this town near this uh, lake that he just recently emerged from and proceeds to slaughter everybody. 
Um, he breaks into a candy store first, kills the proprietor, stuffs his pockets with candy, walks out in the middle of the sun, and then goes to City Hall and he asks for Jim Book because he still remembers Book. He wants revenge against him. Um, and uh, the horror ensues from there on in. Um, he manages to attack Felix Camillo, who is now the sheriff of the local parts. Um, bullets have no effect on, on Skinner. Uh, dynamite explosions have no effect on him. Um, he eventually uh, murders Felix and sends his head along with a telegram to Jim Books, to Jim Book. And, um, oh, actually, the, sorry, he didn't murder Felix at first. He murdered uh, Felix's father. Um, and uh, he sent uh, Felix's father's head ahead of the telegram. And then when Felix and Jim Book, who are still with the Pinkerton Agency, um, Felix now has a daughter who's also Jim's goddaughter called Abilene. Abelina, and um, they're riding um, around the countryside, riding wrongs, and Will Bunting still tagging along, chronicling their adventures. They get this telegram, and, and they Felix hears of his father's death at, at the hands of some maniac. And then, um, obviously, they go to try to uh, destroy whoever killed Felix's father. Um, and Skinner's old posse is still um, extant. They're still, um, you know doing what they do best, which is robbing and pillaging and raping. And uh, they know that Skinner's back. They can't believe it, but they've heard the rumors that there's this guy called, called Skinner Sweet, you know, killing people in this town. And Skinner's holed up in this mine. So eventually what happens is Jim Book and his good guys arrive. They enter the mine. And uh, Book then, in fact, luckily, luckily for him, he uh, gets the best of Skinner. After Skinner kills uh, Felix Camillo, who blindly rushes into the mine because of his father's death, um, Book's, Book manages to hold his own against Skinner because it's a moonless night. And this is also the first time that Skinner Sweet discovers this weakness uh, that the Americans have for a moonless night, which robs them of their strength and makes them sleepy. And um, there's a cave-in. Skinner's trapped underneath the rubble. But before... Um, that happened, he managed to infect Jim Book with his blood by splashing it into Jim's eyes. So Abilene gets, Abilina gets Jim Book out of there, but it's too late. Jim is already undergoing the transformation. He's becoming an American vampire. So Screener Sweet did, in fact, get his revenge by turning an honorable man like um, Jim Book into a vampire. So the final issue of the first volume, um, as pertaining this backstory, concerns Jim as he's struggling with the infection of vampirism. He's becoming an American vampire. He's um, so far only killed animals. And this is now three years after he was infected. He's managed to um, subsist on animal blood alone. And uh, with Felix Camillo dead, his daughter, daughter Abelina is still with her godfather, but she has fallen in love with him. And um, yeah, Jim just rejects her because he's too afraid that he will succumb to the bloodlust and snack on her. And then uh, Skinner has been buried in this mine for three years. Uh, some miners dig him out. Um, these uh, guys looking for, uh, you know, uh, gold. And uh, Skinner wakes up and obviously he kills these 
um, miners and you know becomes his old self, gets his powers back. So Skinner's still alive and well and in the world. So Skinner shows up and confronts old man Percy. And old man Percy has a proposal for Skinner. He says, Skinner, those boys didn't dig you up by accident. I told them where to dig and I wanted to make a deal with you. I want you to join my new world, Skinner. Uh, together we can accomplish great things. What's your answer? And then the very next panel, Skinner is dragging old man Percy into the sunlight on his beautiful plush lawn. And he's sticking him um, you know, in front of this fountain in the middle of the sun. And the sun proceeds to burn Percy to a crisp. And uh, just before he dies, Percy says, Stop, I can get you a million, a million dollars. And Skinner says, it's worth a million just to see you rot. And then Skinner walks away, his final words being, plans, plans, so many plans. And we'll see these plans of Skinner come to fruition in um, uh, upcoming chapters of the American Vampire story. But then uh, Jim Book finally succumbs to Abelina. He says he's going to commit suicide, but before he does, Abelina convinces him to make love to her. And um, after they do that, uh, he shoots himself. Um, now, I'm not quite sure how this could have killed him, but it seems that it was on a moonless night. So it's possible that American vampires can be killed on moonless nights by conventional means. Because on any other night or in, the, in broad daylight, they can't be killed by by bullets or guns or stakes or knives or swords. Well, obviously they can be killed by gold, but at this point in time, none of them knew this. So then we've got Abelina um, sometime in the future, um, standing in a graveyard, and she's saying goodbye to Jim Book. And Will Bunting turns up and says, mind if I tag along, Abelina? And she says, just keep up. And she is holding a baby in her arms, a baby which turns out to be Jim Book's baby. So... Theoretically, this could be a half-vampire, half-human baby, but I'll leave that for later volumes. And then, you know, we, we go back to the um, actual book discussion where Will Bunting's talking about his book and bestseller, Bad Blood. And he's accepting, um, or, you know, he's uh, giving a signature to fans of his, and uh, one leading fan hands him a note, and the note is written by Skinner Sweet, and he just says, Dear Scribbler, you are old and I am young for eternity, so I let you live to suffer and die. Why not? What better revenge is there than that? Here's an autograph just for you, Skinner Sweet. And this big blotch of blood on the letter. And then Skinner walks out of the bookstore, happy as can be, but as it turns out, Abelina Book is outside with her daughter, Felicia Book watching Skinner leave and obviously they're planning on hunting him down or some other plans that they might have. So Skinner's not the only one with plans, plans, so many plans at the end of the story. So that's it. That's the backstory of American Vampire. Now for this backstory, I would give it four bloody fangs out of five. It's a great backstory, but not as good as the main tale. Still worth your while to read it. And Mr. King acquitted him really well. Uh, he's not just great at novels, he could also write a mean comic book. So well done there, Stephen King, on this excellent story. 
Well, we're going to take another little small break. When we come back, we've got our ever-popular errands segment. Don't go away. Alright, listeners, we're back with someone very special to this show, our favorite little sultry, seductress, Erin Lynn. Hi, Erin. How are you? Tired. Tired from anything in particular? Tired from having to be on this show. It's late, okay? It was the best time to record a horror comic show, wouldn't you agree? So, um, we're here to discuss one thing and one thing only. You're spot on, Erin. We're really simpatico tonight. Mm. <laughs> All right, so tonight, since we're talking about different species of vampires, we're going to focus on an obscure Asian type of vampire from Chinese mythology. Gee whiz. We've got a little vampire walking around us right at this moment, Erin. This cat. Scoot. Scoot. All right, so, what, Erin, what can you tell us about this Chinese vampire, this type of bloodsucker? Well, he became popular in Hong Kong horror comic movies about 30 years ago. Oh, so um, is it similar to our own Western vampires? No, it's very different, okay? They are called Jiang Shi or hopping vampires. They can only move by hopping after their victims. They look more like zombies, actually. But do they also subsist on blood? They're blood drinkers? Sometimes. In some stories, it's blood, and sometimes they feed on the qi, or life essence. So, how do you destroy them? How do you fight them? Well, you can scare them with blood of a black dog, or by placing a written rhyme of exorcism on their foreheads. Whoa, that's cool. All right, so, Erin, you know what I'm going to do after this podcast? What? I'm going to rent me some Chinese hopping vampire comedies. Woo! Apologies, constant listeners, for Herman's blatant, childish exuberance. Once again, it's time for the history of horror, as presented by that incorrigible man-child, Herman Lowe. Pleasant screams. <laughs> what follows now is a short introduction to the advent of the Warren publishing craze which followed 
shortly on the heels of EC Comics' demise. Still, it's definitely an important footnote in the history of horror comics that we should look at. All right, listeners, so when last we left off, I briefly teased that we would talk about uh, the creepy and eerie magazines published by uh, Warren Publishing as owned by Jim Warren, the publisher, and oftentimes editor. So let's do a bit of uh, time traveling and go back to uh, 1955 when Image Comics horror titles became defunct and when publisher um, Bill Gaines had to make a decision. Um, In order to keep his business, since he was already heavily in debt, he decided to rework Mad Magazine from a comic book into an actual magazine printed on higher quality paper in a larger format, which would be distributed um, on the magazine racks rather than the comic book spinner racks. And this worked. It proved immensely successful. Um, This freed them from the constraints of the comic book code, which the other publishers had voted on and implemented. And Bill Gaines turned a tidy little profit from Mad becoming a magazine. He tried to do that with his other comics by turning them into magazines as well, as well as, and he called this Picto Fiction, this endeavor of his. Now, Picto Fiction was not as successful as the Mad Magazine um, that he pioneered. Um, He tried to do Shock Illustrated Magazine, a Crime Illustrated Magazine, Terror Illustrated, and Confessions Illustrated. All of them were financial uh, failures. They were kind of a hybrid between a magazine and a comic book, so there were lots of um, prose stories um, with the odd bit of art featured here and there. It did not prove popular because it was neither here nor there. It straddled the line between comic books and magazine stories, so people didn't know what, quite what they were getting. But um, because of this, in 1957, um, this whole concept of magazines replacing comics um, to turn a profit caught the attention of publisher Jim Warren. And um, Warren Publishing in 1957 published a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And they also published a sister magazine called Monster World. And these were edited by uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, a famous name in the annals of horror, comics, and literature. And um, because of the success of Famous Monsters of Film, this emboldened Jim Warren to try his hand at different magazines. So once the whole furor of the comic book code and the uh, witch hunts of uh, the EC Comics era had died down and um, people had forgotten this. This was no longer a prime news. Um, in 1964, um, Warren um, decided to capitalize on their success with Famous Monsters of Filmland, which had been running for seven years. And they decided to publish two magazines called Eerie and Creepy Side by Side. And these would feature comic book stories in magazine format, black and white art all throughout. They would be more expensive than normal comic book issues and larger, sold on the magazine racks, just like Mad Magazine was. And um, there was no need for the code. Um, And since they focused mostly on horror, this proved a great success for Jim Warren. And this brings us firmly into 
the era of the Warren magazine's Creepy and Eerie, and later on in 1969, Vampirella. Now, um, during our next show, we'll get into some of the artists and stories and and um, kind of um, titles featured in these Eerie and Creepy and Vampirella magazines. But I'll leave you with this thought. If it wasn't for the early disdain showed by Warren for the Code, we might not have had all these great horror artists and writers who tried their hand at horror again after the EC Comics boom, where they had been forced to reduce, to, to uh, they had reduced themselves to doing superhero comics and um, ad- advertising and graphic art, stuff they really didn't want to do. Um, some of them, you know, uh, had to do it because to earn a living, they needed to take any jobs they could get. But most of them were fans of the horror genre and the unrestrained nature of the art they could uh, provide in this field. So Jim Warren provided them with that platform. So thank God for Jim Warren, bastard that he was. Uh, He was a a noble bastard and um, we should thank him because he kept horror comics alive in an era where horror comics were not allowed in an actual comic book format. So thank you, Jim. For that, at least. All right, listeners, um, we'll be back with some recommendations. And after that, I'll leave you with some Tom Petty to see us through the night. Anyway, I always loved, I, I loved horror as a kid, but what I realized as an adult, I think, is that in good horror, like good Stephen King, the thing that you're afraid of is what you're capable of as a as a person and you're facing your own great fears. So in something like Pet Cemetery, what you do for your love of children or family, the, the, the terrors that, that that sort of precipitates, that's what the story's about. Or in, you know, in, in Cujo, the fact that you would betray your husband, or these things like The Mist, I mean, those stories to me had such power. Since we discussed vampires, I would like to recommend a recent comic book that I read to all of you constant listeners. Um, about a very different kind of vampire. Obviously, we've dealt you know, heavily with the American vampires in this show, but um, this is a vampire that um, sort of comes from a more traditional origin. Um, the title that I'll, I'm recommending to you at the moment is one from Image Comics called Dark Fang. And um, it's a great little horror comic done in a cartoony style. The writer is uh, Miles Gunter and the artist Kelsey Shannon, but it deals with all manner of horror tropes and it plants an old world vampire firmly within a modern context and uh, does so through the use of uh, social media and um, uh, her confronting modern uh, type of criminals and evils that we deal with on a daily basis. But like I say, she has her origins, this main character, a lady called Vola. She has her origins in um, the classic vampire gothic tale. And I would recommend this to all of you because it gives us, much like Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque, a different kind of vampire. A vampire that we haven't seen before. Um, In case of Vola, she's an old world vampire who spent hundreds of years in the ocean to escape humanity and she befriended a giant shark and um, she discovered that her 
uh, powers of mind control doesn't only apply to humans, it applies to all manner of animal life. And so she um, at first controlled and then befriended a lot of animal life beneath the oceans. She even um, controlled a jellyfish to become her temporary um, suit. <laughs> and then eventually the ocean becomes polluted um, with oil and she decides to venture back onto land and get revenge on uh, the corporations that have poisoned her ocean-dwelling um, denizens and friends. and um, She does so through social media, which is a very, very interesting way that she employs her powers of mind control. So I would recommend this to anybody interested in vampires, interested in horror comics, and interested in something new. Check out Dark Fang from Image Comics. And then another book that I can recommend is one I recently picked up, a nice little hardcover of one of our favorite Japanese horror authors and artists, Junji Ito's Shiver. Now, this is a nice little hardcover published by Viz Media, um, who uh, the publishing company that does most of Ito's uh, English language uh, stuff, um, or the his Japanese work translated into English at least. And um, it's nice and sturdy, great pages. Of course, it reads from right to left in the traditional Japanese manga format. It collects Junji Ito's personal favorite horror tales that he has penned and penciled over the years. So I can definitely recommend that. Check out Junji Ito's Shiver and Image Comics' Dark Fang. If you are of the mind to leave feedback, you can do so um, on my email address, which is darklongbox at gmail.com. You can also uh, reach me on my website, which is longboxofdarkness.com. And you can also uh, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at darklongbox, and I look forward to hear from you. Um, you can even send MP3s for voicemail. I'll play them on the show and discuss any questions in future episodes. That's it for the Longbox of Darkness. As I promised... I'll leave you with a bit of Mr. Petty and his incomparable heartbreakers. As the horror hosts like to say, pleasant screams and take care of yourselves, constant listeners. Bye-bye. You went to Hollywood, got a tattoo. He met a girl out there with a tattoo too. The future was wide open They'd moved into a place they both could afford He found a nightclub he could work at the door She had a guitar and she taught him some chords The sky
played from the heart. He got an agent and a roadie named Bart. They made a record and it went in the charts. The sky was the limit. His leather jacket. Had chains that would jingle. They both met movie stars, partied and mingled. Their A and R man said, "I don't hear a single." The future was wild. 